when I had success doing hip hop music, when I decided to start making heavy metal records, people told me I was insane. Why would you ever make a heavy metal record? You're a hip hop producer. Then when I had success doing heavy metal records and I started making country records or comedy records or whatever it was that I was interested in. And every step of the way, I was called crazy by my partners in the music business. I was, why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time? So there'll always be barriers to entry to anything you want to do. And it's the excitement that you could generate in yourself to overcome first those walls within yourself and then those walls outside of yourself. Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I was lucky enough to speak with one of the living legends of popular music, Def Jam co-founder and super producer, Rick Rubin. I caught him on his cell phone, so if you hear wind or noise in the background, I'm sorry for the inconvenience, and I hope it does not get in the way of his great story. Our internship with Rick starts now. Before we begin talking about your story, there are some questions I would like to ask you. Can you explain the work that actually goes into making an album? We all sit here and listen to great songs, great albums, but we don't really know the behind the scenes. Can you give just a quick rundown of what that's actually like? I can say that there's not a specific way that it always happens. Each one has its own journey. Typically what happens, I can say, is that there's a period of time when the ideas come and the writing happens in the way that I'm used to working, although not exclusively working, but it's complicated because I've worked on many projects with many different kinds of artists. Each artist has their own rhythm and method to get things done. And my job is to support them in doing their best work. So sometimes I'll make a suggestion of trying something a different way than the way that they would normally do it, but more often than not, it's supporting them in their own process. So I will give you a general way that it happens more often than not. But again, there are no rules and it, it can be different every time. Of so typically there are ideas and writing happens. And then this material for some artists would be demoed and in some form where it could be listened to and talked about. And then that might be redone or refined to make the thing that you finally get to hear. And there are many steps in that process. And then there are some artists who are more spontaneous, where they come into a recording session without any pre-existing material and just catch a moment and create something. And that happens more now than I think it used to happen. And I think technology used to make it more difficult for the spontaneous to happen. Now it's easier to capture those moments before going into a recording studio is much more of a, an expensive proposition. So in the same way that it's rare for people to start filming a movie without having a script, it would be rare in olden times to start recording an album without having the songs rewritten. Now that may, may not be the same as it has been in the past. So I've got to work in different ways with different artists, but there's writing, there's recording, there's editing, there's refining, and then you get to hear it. In that response, you answered, or you mentioned that spontaneity is something that was really big now. What other major changes have you seen through your time in the industry? I'll say not even in my time in the industry, but just things I noticed as a student. 
I like a lot of music from the 1960s, which I was, you know, I was a baby. I was born in 1963, so I didn't really listen to much music in the 60s. Maybe, you know, in 1968 or 69, I started listening to music as a, a little kid, actively listening to music. Music was always playing before that, but I don't know that I was really listening to it. In the 60s, to get to make a record, you really had to be good. There was a certain amount of musicians, a certain skill level that you had to pass certain boundaries to be able to ever get the ability to go into a recording studio to record. It was an aspiration that many you know, young bands would want to get to, but not everybody got there. And today... You know, on GarageBand, everyone can do whatever they want on their laptops or maybe even on their phone. So the level of entry now is anyone can do it, which is great because so many people who have great talent and who might not have been able to get to do it before got lost in the shuffle. The, The opposite side of it now is that now because so many people can do it, there's such a glut of content that it's hard for the best stuff to always rise to the top. Now, sometimes it does, but it's also possible to make something good and have it fall between the cracks. We see that happen. To some degree, that's always been the case, but now because the volume of stuff is so much more, it's that much harder to warrant someone's attention. Would you say that the amount of volume has kind of put music into a rut and it's not really developing anymore? I wouldn't say that. I think it's always developing. There are always people who grew up listening to cool music and then find their way to take it to the next level, whatever that is, to put their own spin on it. It's always been the case. Like Chuck Berry listened to the jazz music that was going on and evolved it that into rock and roll. And then the Beatles heard what Chuck Berry was doing and it and evolved it into sort of what we'll call rock music. It keeps happening where people here grow up with a certain kind of music, they get into it, and then they realize that they can take it somewhere it's never gone before. Sometimes they take it where it's never gone before through a great idea. And sometimes they take it to where it's never gone before through either a mistake or incompetence, but still doesn't change the fact that this new thing happens and it's it's interesting and great. Of course. On that kind of line, where do you see the next step for the music industry? I don't really think about the industry so much. I think more about the art and just the response of what do artists need and what's the best way that we can provide service to them to help them get to the next level, to make their dreams come true. It's hard to say. It's more of a, again, case by case, looking at the situation. That's a much better answer than giving the actual what the industry is going to do because no one knows. My next question is less relevant to kind of the topic. It's more something that I personally would want to ask. And so I would say, do you think that social media at a high school and in the younger generation's level has an impact on the creativity and the development of music in a negative way? I wouldn't say in a negative way. I think everything has an influence on everything. So whatever you put your time into will have an impact on the things that you make. Could be good, could be bad. The atom was split and it created the atomic bomb and it also may soon create the future of clean energy for everyone. So it's like the event is the event and then people use it for good or people use it for bad. Social media 
it's something that's in our lives and there will be creative people who use it for good and there'll be ones who get lost in it and it has a negative effect. Is there kind of a personal way that you think we can take advantage of something like social media, not necessarily social media, but a big revolution in a way so that we can make it good for ourselves? Well, I think we've seen that social media is great opportunities for a lot of people. So there are definitely people who have benefited from social media. So yes. Okay, now let's rewind to 1963 in Long Beach, New York. Martin and Linda Rubin gave birth to you. What was life like at home for you? What was life like for me? It was a small beach community that I was born into. I would say the West Coast equivalent would be like uh, Manhattan Beach or Newport Beach or or maybe, let me see, what would be the Northern California version, like Stinson Beach, something like that. So it was a small beach town. There was like a main street with uh, small mom and pop shops. And the beach was on one side of this little island and the bay was on the opposite side of the island. So it was surrounded by water. I would say it was a pretty peaceful resort community growing up and it was close enough to New York City in less than an hour by train or car where it had a, there was a cosmopolitan aspect, even though it was essentially a suburban place, we were close enough to the city that it didn't really feel like you were in the sticks. You were able to go into the city, you were able to experience that life, but you could also experience a peaceful beach existence. And I think it played a big part in my tastes, who I am, and feel very lucky that I was born there as opposed to, let's say, in Manhattan, which would have been my dream. Like, had, had I, at the time, had a choice, I would have much preferred to be in Manhattan because that was the center of the world and where everything was going on. And I, I wanted to be in the center of it, and I felt like I was outside of it. But I wasn't so far outside of it that I couldn't feel it. But I was far enough outside to not have to follow the strict rules of it. My friends who grew up there had much more limited ability to be open to things. <laughs> they, they much more knew what was cool and could only like the cool thing. And it ended up being a big limitation for them. You did frequent the city a lot, though, despite kind of not being controlled by its restrictions. Am I right in saying that? Yes. I went as often as I could. I loved it. I love going, as I said, had I had the choice at that time, I would have preferred to have lived in the city. Now, in retrospect, I'm thankful that I didn't. When you went to the city, you kind of, or I read that you frequented a lot of magic shops and you hung out with that kind of group of people. What was the appeal to magic for you? I always liked magic from the time that I was a kid. I didn't really understand the difference between the magic that's performed by a magician or the magic that's performed by a wizard. I was always fascinated by the unseen world and things that seemed impossible revealing themselves. So whether it would be a miracle like the parting of the seas or a miracle like, wow, the card jumped to the top of the deck. The idea that I could witness a miracle was very exciting to me. And did you learn anything from your time as being with a magician or being around those older magicians? I did. I learned that there are layers and levels to things. I learned that practice is really important in terms of being a magician. You get into a good habit of being someone who practices. So there's a diligence. And I spent a lot of time reading and a lot of time practicing in front of a mirror to understand the way how things worked and how they looked and 
how to manufacture an experience. And did that attitude or that kind of development help you later in the music business? I would say it played a role in who I was. I don't know that I can make a direct... A yeah, direct, yeah, of course. Direct, yeah, but it definitely played a role. All the experiences in my life played a role. And I would say in terms of what people could do, try a lot of things, get good at different things, things that you're interested in. You know, like I, I remember being interested in when I first got my driver's license, even before I got my driver's license when I was 16, I got really into cars and, you know, learning how to take apart a car and put it back together. And I can remember changing the brakes on a car that I had when I was 16 years old and then driving and having the wheel fall off because I didn't put it back on right. And, you know, like just practicing things and trying things and making mistakes and I remember trying to learn to sail and getting lost at sea. You know, I I tried a lot of things, some successfully, some unsuccessfully, but I wouldn't say any of the failures didn't help me in life. You know, they all gave me understandings of different things. All of the experiences I had, the fact that I spent a lot of time in museums or the fact that I spent a lot of time reading or the fact that I spent a lot of time listening to classical music because my Aunt Carol liked classical music, which if it weren't for her, I would have never listened to or never been exposed to because my parents didn't listen to that music. So again, it just happened through the luck of my situation and applying myself to the things that seemed interesting to me from the wide range of things that were out there. There were were also a lot of things that were available to me that I didn't pursue, and that was fine too. You know, following the things that got me excited was something that I always did from the time that I was young and something that my parents really supported. So that was a great thing about the way I was raised. Are there any particular experiences or things that you tried that you feel really marked your character more than anything else? I think probably learning to meditate had the biggest effect on my life. I learned when I was 14 and I did it from 14 until the beginning of college. Then I stopped in college and then I started again when I moved to Los Angeles a couple of years after college. And from the first time that I did it after college, the the first time in California, I realized, oh, the years that I had done this, this is really important. And this is a reason that I see the world the way I do was because I did that for those years. I didn't know that until I got away from it and got back into it. And from that very first reintroduction to it, it became clear. It's like, oh, I see the world differently because I have this in my skill set. How did meditation transform your view of the world? It allows you to get very quiet and still and be with what is. So there's no striving or wanting. There's no desire. There's no trying. There's a tremendous amount of acceptance. And there's no good or bad meditation session. If you sit down to meditate, it's good. You know, you've, you've succeeded. And some days you sit down to meditate and at the end of it, you feel like, wow, that was the greatest thing that ever happened. And sometimes you sit down and you, you know, 20 minutes, half hour later, you feel like, wow, that was nothing happened. I didn't go anywhere. Like I didn't make progress. Feedback is a mistake. The reality is, is if you sit down and do it, you've succeeded in doing it. And having a practice like that really informed the way I do my work. And that there's not, yes, there are good days and there are bad days and it's exciting. But that, again, goes back to magic, that idea of the practice the being willing to do what it takes to do the work to get where you want to go. Even when 
it feels like you're not moving forward. Every session is moving forward in its own way. If you look at it as in its totality, each good or bad meditation is another puzzle piece that fit together to make the picture. I mean, that makes me feel really good about myself because I started meditating a month ago and I've just haven't been getting any better at it. But hearing you say that makes me, uh, makes me feel some confidence in my struggle. Yeah. There's no better to get. All there is, is the doing. If you sit down and do it, you've done it. It's like you're, you're banking those experiences and there's, there's no wrong way to do it. And there's no bad meditation. (laughs) Wow. That's beautifully put. I want to go back to your kind of childhood a little bit again and talk about what was your relationship with your family? I know you mentioned that they helped you kind of grow, but by encouraging you to do things, but is there any other kind of defining parts that you want to talk about with regards to your parents? Hmm. Let me see what I can tell you about them. I I can tell you a little, a little bit that both my parents came from bigger families my dad was the youngest of three. My mom was the youngest of four. And because both of them were the youngest in their families, they both had a naive, childlike aspect. And from as early as I can remember, I always was more the adult in the family and my parents were more the children. Not necessarily that I raised them, that's not not what I'm saying, but just in terms of the way we saw the world, always felt like I saw it from a grown-up point of view and they saw it from a more of a child's point of view. And how did that in, inform you? How did them being sort of not naive, but having that naive side inform that grown-up part of you? I guess it made me feel like I had to figure things out for myself. So most of the things that I researched and were interested in, I didn't go to them for information. I more would would just do the research myself. You know, I would ask my mom to drive me to the library and I would research at the library or I would ask my mom to drive me to a magic store. So, so that she definitely was supportive and would support the things I was interested in, but she didn't teach me about the things I was interested in. She made herself available for me to go do the work and learn what I wanted to learn from whatever experts I could find. And, and I would, that's another thing I'll say is that I'm comfortable asking questions in the same way that you reached out to me and asked questions. I always felt like it was okay to ask people questions. I always felt like if somebody was good at something and I wanted to know how to do it, I would ask them. If they would answer me, I would ask <laughs> and would hang out when I was interested in music. I would go to, in those days, record stores and hang out with the people who worked in the record stores and just ask about music and get them to play me music and tell me about the history of music. And when I was interested in magic, I would spend all of my time in magic stores and get the people who worked in the magic stores to teach me as much as I could learn and put myself in the places to learn the things that I wanted to learn around the people who could teach me and, and always seek out, you know, in the the place where I lived, there might have been one small record store in my town, but maybe there were, I would say, a total of a dozen record stores within a 40-minute drive. So I would start frequenting these different record stores in different places and just, you know, asking my mom to drop me off there and I'd spend three hours in the record store just hanging out, talking to the people who work there and putting myself into that world 
as much as I could. When I went to NYU, I got an internship with Laurie Anderson, a performance artist. I got an internship with something called Rock America, which was an early, I want to say online, but I don't even know if it really was online. It was like an early cable music service. Different places where I could just be close. Closely, I worked at the NYU radio station. I did a show at the NYU radio station. In my high school, I asked my high school, my high school didn't have a radio station. And I said, well, if I come to school early, which is incredible for me to suggest because I historically would always get to school late, always. I was a late night kid, always. I watched Johnny Carson every night, you know, which was late for someone who had to be in school the next day. So I, my parents were late people. They trained me to be a late person. I was a night owl always. And I remember in, at one point in high school, I missed half of the classes of my first two classes in the morning in a semester. You're starting to I describe could. all my friends. <laughs> so, okay. So to make the point of how much I loved music, I thought, wow, if we had a radio station at the school, I want to do this. So I said, how about if I create a recorded music, I would DJ a half hour or hour of music to play over the PA system in the school before school started. So I would have to get to school an hour early to play music. And they agreed with that. They, the school allowed me to do that. And then I would go and did that, you know, until eventually they didn't like the fact that I played, you know, crazy loud music every day and decided to stop that. But it was, again, I was looking for ways to practice the things I was interested in doing, either for myself or with an audience, with whatever I had available to me at the time. You know, just because there was no school radio station, how could I make a school radio station? How was I able to, you know, how could I do that? This was, again, there was no online version of this. So had there been online, I would have done everything online. And in many ways, my career would have started much earlier than it did, because I always had the instinct to want to just make things and put them out and, and, and get feedback and understand how people responded to things. Oftentimes, I see kids with a lot of ideas and myself with a lot of ideas, but it's hard to create the confidence to go out and actually do it, actually ask the school to let you make the radio show. How did you build up yeah. the confidence in those situations? I think I can really attribute that to my parents, the fact that I was an only child. I was somewhat spoiled. My parents told me that, you know, I was the best in the world at everything that I did unrealistically. You know, they were blindly positive as it related to me. And it built a confidence that, again, maybe not rooted in reality, but I believed I could do things. And it has served me very well over the course of my life, the confidence to believe that I could do things. This may not be something that you can personally speak to, but how do you feel that someone who doesn't have that same confidence can build it or can live with that drive? Drive is an interesting word. And I would not use the word ambition, although some might. I wouldn't call it an ambition. I would call it need to share. A need, both a need to learn and a need to connect. So to take in information and share information. And I always had that urge to, I'd want to learn as much as I could possibly learn and I would want to share as much as I could possibly share with whoever would be interested in sharing it. I always hoped 
that I would be able to find people who liked what I liked, you know, find my tribe of my subset of people who, because if you're interested in anything to the point that you go deep into it and you if will say geek out, if you're so into something that you know the minutiae, it's much more fun doing that in a community of others, like-minded people who you can discuss it with, who you can both learn stuff from and share stuff with. That was one of the great things about the magic world. It's like, if you're not a magician, the magic world is, a, is sort of a closed door. There's secrets and nobody can know. If you're a budding magician and you're welcomed in with the magicians, it's this whole world of knowledge and people are eager to share and excited to talk about it and interested in coming up with variations and everyone is working together to kind of further this art. It's an ancient art that everyone's working together to find the new angle on. Same is true in music. The people who make music are really excited to collaborate with other people who make music. It's the most fun thing in the world to work with talented people and collaborate. So going back to your question now, it's the hunger for that connection is the thing that gets you over the hump to ask the question you don't want to ask. Now, I'll tell you, I'm a relatively private person. I don't talk a lot. This conversation today will be the most talking I've done probably in a month. Um, wow, I'm, but now I'm even more honored. <laughs> okay. So I don't speak very much. I tend to have a difficult time getting things done. So I'm, there's a part of me that's lazy. <laughs> there's a part of me that's uh, tired. There's a part of me that doesn't have the energy to, to do the thing that's ahead of me. And there's part of me that can be depressed. And all of those, so I have all of these things weighing down, stopping me from doing the thing that I want to do. Only thing that allows me to overcome all of these barriers is my enthusiasm for the thing that I'm excited about. So I can garner the excitement of the thing that I'm excited about to overcome my fear of talking about it with someone, my fear of asking someone if they'll participate, my fear of, now I can't always do it, but I, I've done it enough to be able to make the things I've been able to make. But I will tell you, and it's, it'll sound funny because again, I know I've made a lot of stuff over the course of my life. Every day, just getting out of bed is a struggle for me. It is a struggle for me to face the world every day. And I have to overcome that <laughs> to be able to do anything, just to be able to get out of bed. So I would say it's tuning into the excitement. And I'll say if you're not excited enough to overcome the forces that are in the way, because there'll always be forces in the way of anything you want to do, the best idea in the world, you'll be called the crazy person. Always. Every time I've been successful at something new, the next new thing I want to do I'm told by the people who just saw me be successful with the last thing, you're crazy, that'll never work. Every time, it has never not been the case. When I had success doing hip-hop music, when I decided to start making heavy metal records, people told me I was insane. Why would you ever make a heavy metal record? You're a hip-hop producer. Then when I had success doing heavy metal records and I started making country records or comedy records or whatever it was that I was interested in. And every step of the way, I was called crazy by, by my partners in the music business. I was, why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time? So there'll always be barriers to entry to anything you want to do. And 
It's the excitement that you could generate in yourself to overcome first those walls within yourself and then those walls outside of yourself. Would you say that that was a big part of your relationship with your parents too? Because they wanted you to take a different path than you took. And that was something your excitement for music, your excitement for magic took you in the other path beyond the barriers that they set, beyond the barriers that being in the small town set, beyond the barriers of being close to New York, beyond the barriers like that, that mentality is what brought you past those walls. I would say my enthusiasm definitely led the charge because it was by no means a plan. You know, I didn't have a plan to be in the music business. I may have had a plan to be in a band and play shows. You know, that that was a realistic plan. Like I could be in a band with the kids in my high school, which I was, and I could be in a band with the kids in my uh, dorm, and I could be in a band, and we might be able to get some gigs, and we might be able to make some, you know, lo-fi recordings ourselves. Those were those were realistic goals. The idea of professionally having music be my life's work was not a realistic goal for my understanding of the world, where I grew up and what I saw. I didn't know that that was possible. That was not what I set out to do at all. I set out to follow a path to have enough success in life to live in a way where I could support my art habit, my music habit. So my only goal ever in working towards having a having a career when I was still in school, thinking about having a career was, okay, how can I have a career where I'll be able to still do music as my hobby and have that not be a problem? It was never the thought that this was going to be my work. I always probably thought it would be my life, but I thought I would have a job to support my life. I didn't realize that it was possible for the two to be together. So that, that it was a really grace allowed that to happen to me. You know, it was not my doing, not my choice. Was there anything that helped you recognize that it could be your choice, that it, that it was your calling to be who you are today? I don't think so. I think, luckily, my parents taught me confidence. So I had a sense of confidence and self-worth. I believe that I was, you know, good at things because my parents told me I was good at things long enough that I believed them. And then when I started making things, right from the beginning... Even while I was in college, I started making music and it started getting successful. So the feedback allowed it to happen. Again, I never had to make a hard choice. By the time that I decided not to go to law school, which was sort of the track that my parents had me on, I was already successful in the music business without really trying to be successful in the music business, just trying to make music and get it out to people. I never went to a record company to try to get a deal. I never did any of those things. I did everything independently always. I just, okay, what do I have to do to, to record? What do I have to do to make this thing? What do I have to do to get it onto a vinyl disc? What do I have to do to get the vinyl disc into the handful of DJ stores where the people who I thought who might like it might be able to get it? So the scale was tiny. You know, the scale was pressing up 500 records and getting them to the places where those 500 records could do what they needed to do. And maybe never be more than that. You know, if, if all I was able to do was to press a thousand hip hop records and sell them and make enough money back to be able to make another one, that would have been a fine system because that my interest was in making these things and putting them out. It was never about how big can they get or how much money I could make. I never, I never considered that. All I considered was, I, these are the things I want to make. 
And the idea of was much more about how can I provide for myself? That had nothing to do with what I love doing. Now, in retrospect, I see for me, by doing what I loved, a career path that I didn't know existed opened up for me. And I think that that's the case for many other people who, who I've talked to. It was not so much carrying out a plan so much as following the things that they loved in a really passionate and extreme way with all of their hearts and something good happening. So, and a great deal of luck involved too, because I could have told you the exact same story and none of the things that happened in my life would have happened. And I could have ended up being a person doing, being a lawyer and being very unhappy in that life. But the part of my life that would have always made me happy was the part that was making music. And I would still be doing that. I think, I hope, you know, that would be, it was always where my heart was. There was the point though, when you kind of made it work yourself, when Russell Simmons heard your music and you asked him to work with you, but he kind of turned you down because he said, you're just some college kid and you petitioned him. What was it like in that moment? Kind of realizing you have this opportunity and trying your hardest to take it, being denied, but continually working to take that opportunity. It was really a negotiation. It was a question of what I thought would benefit. It's like, if I'm proposing something to him that I think is good and he says no, he's not viewing it as a win-win. So he's viewing it as, oh, this might be something good for him, the kid who wants to do this, but this is not good for me. So then I thought about, okay, what would be a situation that would be attractive to him knowing that he liked the music that I made? And I said, after he turned me down, I said, okay, how about this? How about I make all the music I do all the work. I basically, I'll do everything and you be my partner. And he said, okay, I'll do that. And why were you okay making that compromise? I mean, it seems like... Well, it's, not, it's, not a comp- it's not a compromise at all because the point is we each had something of value in the relationship. The thing that I brought in the relationship was this uh, willingness to do the work and skill set to make the music. But I was a kid in college with no connections or I wasn't a player in this game. Now, times are different now where I feel like in today's world, we see more young people creating great things and being seen for who they are and finding a path into growing something, being accepted. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like at at the time that I was doing this, this is now, I don't know, 30 something, 35 years ago however many years ago it was, there was a huge barrier between kids making stuff and the industry. And not that my goal was to be in the industry, but I wanted my stuff to be seen. It's like a closed system of distribution and you want to get, you want to see your book, you wrote a book and the difference is you either are selling your book out of the back of your car or you're selling your book in the local bookshop and you're selling your book on Amazon. I didn't have my the ability to get to Amazon. I would still make the same thing. Do you know what I'm saying? I did the work, I made, but I didn't have that link and there was no Amazon. So there was another piece of this, which in addition to Russell being a credible person in the music industry, which is Russell had experience with something that I had no experience with, which is called promotion, which is another of the things that are done in the music business there's the A&R and the creative part is the making of the art. There's the marketing, which is the creative art around a project and ways of clever ways of turning people onto it that 
don't involve getting it on the radio. And then there's promotion, which is getting it on the radio. And that's something that I had no experience with or really interest in, whereas Russell, that was his expertise. So even though in our relationship, in my ask to get to, for him to become my partner, he had both the credibility in this little world that I didn't have, and he had promotion ability and skill. Now, I didn't get him to commit to using that that skill, but that was the point of this win-win. It's like, if I made something great, and if he was a partner, and if it was to his advantage to take some action for something good to happen, that would be good for both of us. It'd be as good for him as it was for me. So that's why it made sense to me. It was like, I could be a kid in school, I could become partners with somebody credible who has a different skill set than me, and if I provided the goods that would make sense for him to get involved in the skill set that he had that I didn't, it was good for everybody. Of course. And I mean, turns out it was was great for you both. Because after a little bit of time, Columbia Records took notice of you guys and offered you a check to be a, uh, a finder for four artists a year. And you said that that check made the process real and it was time for you to live the life of an artist. What did that change mean to you? going from being the college student who's just making music to actually living the life of the artist? Honestly, it was not so different. I don't, wouldn't say my life changed so much. For example, I still lived in the dorm. You know, even in the summer when everybody would go home, I continued living in the dorm for, you know, the next summer. I was so focused on making music that I didn't consider anything else. You know, I didn't consider... So I guess in a way, that's what, that's what that living the artist's life was... I didn't think about having to get a job to support myself. I didn't think about how and where I was going to live. I just submerged myself in, you know, culture, learning and make learning about art and making art. And then after working with Russell for a little bit, you got in a dispute over the relationship, the label's relationship, Def Jam's relationship with Columbia Records. And you went on to make yes. Deaf American Records. Obviously, yes. Deaf American Records was a huge success, but it wasn't just a success in one day. There was a lot of hard work and process. What was the mentality when leaving Columbia and having to start anew? I had just done the work with Def Jam, so I knew what was entailed. I will say doing it again was much, much, much more difficult. And the first time you do anything, you assume that that's the way it goes. Something that I see with bands who get together and have great success or artists who have great success, and it comes quickly and easily you think that it always comes quickly and easily, and it does not. So I learned some of the reality of it was much harder the second time. The work was harder the second time. Felt The first time it felt very effortless. The second time it was much more labored. Is there any particular experience which really speaks to that? Hmm. I guess the way I can say it is that, you know, when you do work and it's received well over a period of time, you build up a certain amount of goodwill and you can build up goodwill in a brand. So if you start from nothing and create a brand and build up goodwill in that brand over a period of time, and then you start over again, you're not starting as that the next chapter of that brand, you're starting with with the first chapter of a new brand and you're starting from scratch. So 
even though I had credibility based on what I had done at Death Jam, the fact that I had changed genres, the fact that I had moved to California, the fact that I was working with all new people, everything was just harder to do. It was just harder. If it was so much harder, how did you stay motivated to keep doing it? And how did you actually do it? Both of them were unexpected. Like I wasn't the success that we had the first time was completely unexpected. And the struggle that I had the second time was completely unexpected. But neither of those were the reasons I did it. You know, in both cases, I wasn't doing it because of the outcome. I was doing it because I wanted to find great artists and make great music. That's, that's what my passion was. And what I came to realize over time was that, oh, I like doing that even if everybody doesn't like it. The fact that sometimes everybody likes it is kind of a miracle, you know. But as long as I make the thing that I want to make, and if people have the chance of being exposed to it and either liking it or not, I've, I've done my job. You know, my, my job is to make the thing and make it to the best of my ability and then let it go into the world and then make the next one, whatever it is. And that mentality of this is, I'm just here to make the product. I feel like a lot of people try and have that attitude of just kind of being in the moment, just doing it for doing it because you love doing it. But at some point it becomes hard because there is the reality of, of life. How do you deal with, I don't know, the reality of actually needing to make money, needing to be successful. Well, I will say, I'll say I've been lucky in that I've, there was only, I think there was maybe one point in my life where I felt like, oh, maybe I, maybe this, maybe I can't do this anymore. I can't remember the specifics, but I remember had more to do with like a political situation where I was working at a company and or partnered with a company. And it was just a weird dynamic where the people that I had partnered with ended up changing. Like they got politically moved out and someone else got moved in who didn't have that same relationship. And maybe it's happened twice in my career. And in those moments, it's definitely like, a wow, this is a weird feeling. I wonder if I'm going to be able to do this anymore. So, But I would say for the most part, the fact that things worked allowed them to continue. And I know you you said that it's really your love for music that drove you, but in that exact moment, sitting there thinking, maybe this is not going to work, there's got to be a little bit of fear and insecurity that's running through you. Absolutely. Absolutely. There'll definitely be a feeling of like, wow, what am I going to do? Does the fact that you found something that you're passionate for overcome that fear and insecurity, or is there something else that we can do to address the just being scared? Well, things like meditation practice are really helpful and continuing to move through the fear. I mean, the reality is, is that even though I've had those couple of occasions in the course of my career where I had that feeling of fear, wow, I wonder if I'm going to still get to do this. Because of my depressive nature, there'll be times when everything can be going great on the outside and everything is very successful. And I'll have the internal feeling of, I don't, you know, I can't do this. Not because I don't have the skill sets. Like I, I can't bring myself to do it. I don't know if you've ever suffered with any kind of uh, depressive feelings, but it can, it can really make it hard to do anything. So I've come to realize that part of that, I'll call it an instability, leads to a sensitivity that has really benefited my art. So it feels like there's always a balance. So yes, there are, there are the fact that, that 
it's difficult for me to motivate myself to do things exists in my life. The fact that I have that, that is part of what creates my help allows my ability to create better art. So in other words, any of the things that we think of as struggles or difficulties or fears, they could also be drivers. You know, they could also be, if you think of fear, you can think of fear as energy and that energy is very similar to excitement. And for some people, they, they could use fear as energy to drive them forward. I don't know if I'm that person, but some people can. I will say that I do use some of the difficulties in my life to drive myself forward. If you don't mind me asking, could you talk a little bit more specifically about that? Yeah, I would say it's just, it's mood-related things. Like, I, I'm very sensitive to things. I'm sensitive to things to the point of where things that seem like they'd be very easy to do are not always very easy to do. Example being listening to music is something I love to do. It's, it's my main purpose in life. And sometimes I'm called to do that and I'm not able to do it. There'll be a time that I can do it, but I can't always do it. Like I can try, I can sit down to do it and I can feel whether I'm in a place of enough clarity to do what I need to do. <laughs> sometimes I can do it, sometimes I can't. And I'm kind to myself when if I can't do it, I, you know, pause and then try it again at another time when I think, you know, things feel a little better and I can do it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can really relate to that. I don't want to take up much more of your time because you've already given me so much time and I'm so grateful. So I just want to close by asking you, are there any other stories in your life, any other big moments that you feel have really helped define you, have really changed course in your life or taught you a lesson that you feel you want to share? I would say it's not so much big things, but small things. And I noticed them over time. Like I'll notice I had a cousin who, so I was probably, I'm going to say seven or eight years old, really into music, went to visit a cousin, my dad's brother and uh, his kids. And the kids were older than me. One of my cousins was dating a drummer in a band. And I was listening to music because anytime I would go to their house, they had a lot of records. And I'm listening to music. And I remember the drummer saying, when I listen to music, I like turning, in those days, there was a, like more like on a car radio, there was a bass control and a treble control. And on the receiver in this system that we were listening to records on, there was a control for a bass control and a treble control. And this drummer guy who was probably 10 years older than me, maybe 12 years older than me, said, you know, I like turning up the treble because I'm a drummer and I feel like I can hear more of what the drummer's doing. And now that, that happened when I was, as I say, between six and eight years old. That was just a little seed that was planted there. And then maybe in my 20s when I was recording drums, when we were working on the mix, I said, what's it like if we turn the treble up a little bit on the drums? What is that? How does it affect the drums? Because of the comment that he made. Now, now he wasn't a record producer. He was, just, he was just a guy who played in a band and his experience of listening to music it was just a little nugget that was planted in my brain. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I happened to remember it and it probably had an effect on the way I produce records. So it, again, it's like these, it could, 
be these little insignificant moments in life. If you're really open and paying attention, there are clues all around us that the way I like to think of it is that the universe conspires on our behalf to tell us what we need to know. So when you really are looking for an answer, be open to it coming. You know, allow yourself to believe that the answer is close by and it may come in a form that is not obvious, but really paying attention to life, like paying attention to everything, listening to what people say, listening to what people mean. If someone says something and you don't understand it, ask them to explain it to you, like ask questions, be interested and you'll be surprised. Like the, it's like crowdsourcing information all the time. It doesn't have to be in the cloud. It happens in reality if you're open to it. If you're open to it and you're looking for it, there are clues everywhere. So um, I would just pay attention. <laughs> That's a perfect note to end on. Mr. Rubin, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being personal and opening up. My pleasure. On the next episode of One Hour Intern, I get to learn from Natalie Morales. I think we all want positive affirmation. We want to be liked. We want people to always be on our side or to really feel that people are cheering us on. And the reality is, is if you're looking for validation, you're going to be disappointed every day. You have to validate yourself. You have to feel good about yourself. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.